0: Hello and welcome to the Sports Law Podcast with Nick DiMarco QC of Blackstone Chambers. In this episode four of the Sports Law Podcast, we shall focus on one of the most significant and often controversial aspects of professional football, the role of the football agent. We'll talk about what football agents do, some of the difficult legal issues that arise, the new FIFA regulations and proposed cap on agents fees, and what the future might hold for football agents. I'll also be asking my guests, how they ended up doing the fascinating work in football that they do today. I'm joined today by three leading experts in the sector. Jonathan Barnett is the chairman and co-founder of ICM Stella, one of the biggest global sports agencies in the world. Forbes magazine recently called him the number one most powerful sports agent in the whole world. His clients include football players Jack Grealish, Gareth Bale, Ruben loftus cheek and Jordan Pickford. Jonathan is also the Vice President of the Football Forum, an international organisation of leading football agents and players, leading the opposition to some of FIFA's new agents' proposals. Dan Lowen is a highly experienced sports lawyer, partner and co-founder of Level, a leading commercial law firm focused on media, entertainment, technology and sport. Dan and I have worked on many agents' cases over the years, and he's an expert in the area. He co-authors, along with me, the chapter on football intermediaries in our book, Football and the Law. Kelly Skeggs is the Director, COO and General Counsel for one of the leading independent football agencies in the UK. She's worked in professional football for over a decade, both club and player side. She's a former elite level athlete herself, a non exec director of NGB Table Tennis England. And Kelly brings a valuable insight as an experienced, qualified lawyer, board director, sports administrator, and COO. We're going to start with looking at the role of football agents in the football industry. What do they do? What value do they add? In the first part of the chapter on football intermediaries in our book, Football and the Law, we analyse the role of agents in football. Dan, can you give us a summary of agents' activity in football
1: over the past few years? Well, in basic terms, Nick, agents play a crucial role in representing players' interests and careers, both on the pitch and off it. A commonly held misconception is that agents will swoop in and earn a lot of money on a player transfer. But the reality is that an agent will likely have spent many years counseling guiding and helping that player assisting them with personal professional and commercial issues it's just that the public visible side of an agent's work is their negotiation of a transfer or a new contract which inevitably is the bit that hits the headlines it's true however that a player's agent will negotiate a player's existing club uh, a player's existing club and prospective club contracts to ensure that his or her clients interests are protected Uh, Players' careers are short and clubs are, in the most part, sophisticated businesses. So without an agent, if a player were representing themselves, there would be a significant imbalance in bargaining power between the employer, the club, and the employee, the player. Off the pitch, the commercial power of players, as as opposed to traditionally the, the clubs they play for, is constantly on the rise. And agents play the role of managers of their clients' commercial careers. But agents also work for clubs, helping them to sign and release talent, and to negotiate with other clubs to agree on the terms on which a player will be allowed to move. Agents can play a pivotal role in brokering transactions between clubs, often internationally. And without agents' activities in that regard, there would be, a few, there would be far fewer transactions around the world, um, and I think far fewer opportunities for players. The the sheer number of player transactions in football annually demonstrates just how much potential work there is out there for agents around the world. So in 2021, there were over 18,000 potential, over 18,000 international transfers in men's professional football. So that's ignoring domestic transfers, of which, of course, worldwide, there are thousands. It's ignoring amateurs, that's ignoring women's football, which is booming. And how many of those 18,000 were agents involved in? Only a minority of the 18,000, so the majority didn't involve agents, but agents were involved in thousands of transactions around the world domestically and internationally last year. And we've all seen sensationalist headlines uh, following a a particularly high-profile transaction or the day after FIFA publishes its annual report on agents' fees. And it is a fact that (coughs) 500 million U.S. dollars was spent on agents fees in relation to international transfers in 2021.
0: So that, what was that figure? 500 Five, million? 500 million was spent on agents fees in 2021. Exactly. And that that's who's spending that? Is that the players or the
1: clubs or, or both? The, the vast majority of that will have been paid by clubs. Now, in, in different countries around the world, there are different approaches to how agents fees can be paid by players, by clubs, by a combination of the two. Um, but the majority of that money will have come from clubs. But i think it's important to, to to point out that in that same year five billion dollars were spent on international transfer fees and a huge amount more on players salaries and bonuses and that's leaving aside domestic transfers so in that context and given the crucial role that agents play in a multi-billion dollar industry it's it's not really surprising that agents can earn well for the vital services they provide
0: well there were some important statistics jonathan you've been a football agent for many years now on the ground, what, what's, what what are the things you do and, and those who work for Stella do? What's the day-to-day work of an agent that perhaps the, the
2: public don't see? I think the most important thing is the welfare of the, of the actual player. So there are lots of things going around that we don't do anything. They think we only work during the transfer window and the rest of the time we will go on holiday. Well, that's only me that does that, but... Other people work, mm. and it's a full-time job. We have to look after the player, because in truth, most clubs don't look after the player as an individual. They're part of a of a group, and they're not really capable of looking. That's nothing wrong with that. That's our role. So we have to make sure that the player mentally today is well looked after. That is obviously we look after. his marketing, his sponsorships, which, in some cases, are have various twenty people looking after some some players. So they're big organisations today. And, you know, we employ nearly 200 people. So they are working year-round. And we don't look after clubs. We look after the player and we look after all his interests. So we may even get a phone call from his wife or girlfriend or whatever. So we have to look after that. We have to make sure that when a player is on the field, all he has to think about is playing. Everything else we'll take care of.
0: And everything else is is almost literally everything else, isn't it? I mean, I know from working with you for a long time, Jonathan, that if players have legal issues, for example, it's usually you, the agents, who sort out all their legal defence or representation and so on, isn't it?
2: Absolutely. It's very important because, with all due respect, it's an area that they know nothing about. um, And they want somebody by their side to do that, and that's very important. Um, I would say all year round... We are talking to legal people um, about barriers. some things very trivial, something like buying a house, the legality of that, to sometimes some more, much more serious things. But we have to have a good legal team around us. Obviously, that's where you come in. I, co- I look for other people, but they weren't available. So, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, in reality, <clears throat> it's very important that we know what, what legal teams and how... The legal side has to know about football and exactly what we do as well. We can't just go to just anybody. Yeah. So that's important.
0: The other thing I think perhaps not everybody realises is that they look at the headline figures, agent gets paid this percentage on a transfer or a re-signing of a playing. But all that day-to-day work you're describing, the agents don't get paid for that, do they? They only ever get paid when there is this renegotiation. Yeah.
2: I mean, that's all part of the service that we provide. and. It's very important, like you said, we get paid when we actually do some renegotiation or in, in most cases, and sometimes when we sell the player. But help to sell the player, don't sell it ourselves. But the most important thing is they have to have complete and utter faith in their agent. The Today, if I'm not mistaken, there are over 3,000 agents in, in Britain, and I'm not sure what 2,900 of them actually do for a living. You know, you you do get... Uh, the press. Not every agent is going to earn a fortune. It's the ones that look after the player properly that will. I'm not saying that they're all bad, but you can't have three thousand people all earning a living with not that many players around. Yeah,
0: yeah. I think on those statistics, Dan. Just going back to you for a moment. There were. Um, I'm not sure if you have the statistics in front of you, but before when they used to have licensed agents in 2015, it was a much smaller amount, wasn't it, yeah, in the market?
1: It fluctuated year on year but it tended to hover around the 500 licensed agents in England and now as Jonathan says between individuals and registered companies there are over 3,000 registered intermediaries and of course it's a similar pattern all around the world so when you you factor in that's only in one country and you've got all of the other big markets in Europe and around the rest of the world it's a huge number of registered intermediaries and as Jonathan says I think a lot of them won't be doing a huge amount
2: and and today sorry and today it's When I first started nearly 30 years ago, it was much simpler than it is today. Today, with all these social media and all the different types of things going on, you need a team. An agent needs a team of people to help that player. And that's what people forget. It's just not a one man band. As I say, we employ nearly 200. Some of the other big companies employ more or less. But an individual is almost impossible today. When I used to do marketing, I still do. Sorry, when we start up in marketing, you go to say a, a an Adidas or a Nike, and you take one sheet of paper and say, "I've got a very good, I've got a very good player, and you know you're going to be a big star." And they we we discuss it for a while and come up with a deal. Today they want to know the demographics of that player. They want to know how many you know worldwide what is following on social media. How, how many between the age of 18 and 22, what sort of countries? So you go now with a a big folder and sit down. So it's almost impossible for one man to do that. And that's why it's very important that the player picks agents that know how to do that. So it's much more complicated than the average person thinks. We don't just lay around. Well, I hope not.
0: (laughs) Yes. Kelly, Jonathan's spoken about some of the things agents deal with. Um, You're COO of Omnisports. Um, and so you're, you're running an agency with lots of different agents there. What are the kind of things that those who work at Omnisports have to deal with on a regular basis?
3: Obviously, all of my views on this are my own and don't necessarily reflect those of Omnisports. Um, well, uh, Jonathan's covered a lot of what we do. Um, obviously, uh, as we've said, the public perception is on the end of a deal, but what goes on behind the scene is a far bigger operation. Um, and as, as Jonathan said there, the, the one-man bands anymore they can't possibly provide the full service that a player needs. So we see ourselves as kind of an extension to a player's family and, and we sit in their circle and we look after their, their, their health, their well-being, um, both physically and mentally. We will look at um, pathways, we'll look at career progression, we'll look at targets, we'll keep them accountable for what they're doing. They might have specific goals that they want to reach, we'll sit behind them. They might have performance anxiety at a certain time and they might need assistance with that um their the commercial deals um what jonathan said it's impossible to gather the information necessary for these companies now as a one as a one-man band so we we provide a holistic service tailored to each individual player and there'll be some players that need uh, um that have really great needs that, that need to be um contacted on a daily basis and there are other players that simply want the the end service um, and you have to tailor what you're willing to provide to each individual player and you can only do that uh, and you have to react um on the day it could be anything
0: i think hearing you both speak it it's sounding to me much more like these days the role of a football agent is the role of a business that services all sorts absolutely. of different areas rather than the old-fashioned one-man band agent is that right
3: absolutely and and as Johnson uh, said that trust is absolutely crucial. If, if the player doesn't trust his agent, then they're, they're, they don't have anything. So we look after their legal interests as well. So you'll sit aside them and they trust you to deliver on their best interest. They're trusting you to deliver on their most crucial part of their lives, which is their career. So everything else simply falls into place. But you have to be there for, for, through everything 24-7. It's it, it, a Football agency doesn't shut down. It is 24-7, seven days a week.
0: It, it's um I've been with agents. In fact, some of... Uh, with Jonathan and, and some of those he works with uh, abroad and so on. And I've I've noticed they're a little like me or perhaps worse in that they never turn their phone off and they're never off their phone. It, it is really 24-7, isn't it?
3: Yeah, they don't turn their phones off. They can't turn their phones off because if a player needs to speak to you, it doesn't matter if it's 3 o'clock in the morning or 11 o'clock at night. You They need to speak to you and they need to speak to you now. And and that's what their expectations are of you. Um, so no, there's absolutely no downtime for a, any football agent, any any very good football agent.
0: Okay, um, I'm going to move on now to discuss some of the most important legal issues that arise in the football agent space. Um, again, turning to you first, Dan, as you co author the chapter with me on the, the law and, and
1: and football agents, what are those important legal issues that arise? Well, Nick, as you know, there, there are a, a really wide range of, of issues that come up on a day-to-day basis, so I'll, I'll pick out a few. Um, one that arises fairly frequently for, for my clients is the fact that they're operating in a highly commercial environment, negotiating high-value contracts and juggling the competing interests of numerous, client, uh, numerous parties. Uh, but at all times, they need to ensure that they comply with a highly prescriptive regulation governing the industry. There's the FIFA's there's FIFA's rules, there's the FA's rules, Premier League, Football League's rules. So agents will be trying to secure the best possible deal or arrangement for their client and then for themselves from a legal and commercial perspective, trying to take into account all possible eventualities of what may be a four or five year playing contract in some cases. But they also have to bear in mind the regulations. And there are commercial points which can be freely agreed between... The parties and documented legally but which uh, which may not comply with the regulations and certain types of payments by from a club to an agent for example may simply not be permitted by the FA's rules and that's something that they have to constantly grapple with um, a second issue is non-compliance with contractual obligations uh, tends to arise often with uh, with agents in the context of their representation contract and it may be because player ignores his contractual obligations, uh, alleges that the agent's in breach of the agent's contractual obligations, or maybe even that the player never even signed the, the representation contract in the first place and one has to bring in handwriting experts. Um, the agent's industry is so competitive that players can have their heads turned at any opportunity, no matter how big the agency is that they are they are currently represented by. And if a player's career or performance on pitch isn't going as well as the player may like, then it may be that they feel they need to change off pitch. Um, So the enforcement of contractual rights and and entitlements and standing up to contractual breaches is something that I have to advise on fairly frequently. Um, Third is that the FA has a team of regulatory investigators who are looking into agents' compliance with the regulations. Um, They seem to be challenging agents and agents activities on on an increasingly frequent basis these days Uh, particularly with reference to approaches to minors working with minors and also the way in which the payments made by clubs and players are structured in transaction documentation Um, and that's something that comes up fairly frequently Um, and on a related point um, the the way in which payments are documented between clubs and players um, is something that doesn't just have to be legally sound and regulatory compliant it also has to stand up to scrutiny from hmrc something that changed last year in in, in april 2021 was hmrc's approach to the way in which uh, fees are structured and they have to be structured correctly as far as hmrc is concerned um, to ensure that the player doesn't get lumbered with a, an unexpected tax bill further down the road so those are some of the issues
0: and hmrc in particular seem to be paying special attention to football agents and football payments in the last few years, haven't they? I think they've even set up a task force just to work on it. Have, have you noticed a lot more work in that area?
1: Well, there's, there is a lot more work in the area, mainly because uh, HMRC has, has seemingly altered its stance. Um, up until April, 20, April of last year, it was a generally accepted principle in football that when an agent acts on behalf of a player... Uh, the fees can be apportioned on a 50-50 basis between the player and the club on the basis that the agent was providing services of genuine value to the club.
0: That's when they have a dual representation contract or a tripartite representation. So normally it was 50-50 in terms of player services and club
1: services. Yes, and and the, the, the commercial justification or rationale for that was that when the player appointed the agent on an exclusive basis, the, the, the player will have agreed a fee with the agent. But when it comes to a deal, and the agent is genuinely providing services to the club in in bringing the player to the club and persuading the player to accept the club's terms, it makes sense for the club to bear some of the responsibility for the fees paid to the agent. Um, but whereas there was that previously accepted view, uh, albeit HMRC don't acknowledge that that was ever previously accepted by them, but um, many agents and lawyers and tax advisors working in the industry generally generally have the opinion that that was accepted by HMRC and last year they issued new guidance that changed the rules and effectively said that they want to see evidence of the apportionment between the player and the club and they need that to be justifiable and, and documented in meeting notes, in phone call records mm. of phone calls, in WhatsApp messages. So they want to see that value and they want the apportionment between the player and the club to reflect the reality of the deal and that creates a lot of work for, for, for agents and clubs. And it's very difficult because a lot of the time when an agent is working on a deal, uh, much of what goes on will be in phone calls, will be in meetings. A lot of it is face-to-face. A lot of it is relationship-driven in football. So you don't automatically have meeting notes that explain the tremendous value that you can bring to a deal because all of that is actually done in a series of meetings and phone calls. So that creates an issue that agents now have to be far more, far more aware of.
0: Jonathan, in, in your time as uh, an agent and knowing other agents as well, not just you, your own experience, what, what are the more interesting or thorny legal issues that you've
2: come across? Well, I've come across one today, not to speak after him. <laughs> <laughs> he covered most of the <laughs> points. But, uh, <clears throat> sorry, I think, obviously, in my time, Bosman was, a, was the major legal thing that changed football. And that was right at the beginning of I'm not sure how many years ago that was even now. Do you know that? 95, I think it was. Sounds about right, yes. Yeah, Yeah. 95. So it's a long time ago, but I was there. So um, it's changed the way football behaves. So that was obviously the most important thing, I think. Um, Today also, um, a lot more um, cases are there, Uh, agents and players. Are involved in a lot more court cases than ever before, and it's growing. I think it's growing because, again, I don't want to get into this day FIFA Premier League or you know, uh, issue so many rules and regulations that probably because they don't understand the actual relationship of a player and an agent and the clubs that make it almost impossible to to not get into legal arguments. And then we, we as a company, and I'm sure um, Kelly has as well, we have. Compliance officers, compliance teams—we have all these sort of people now. Where you take a contract, you hand it to them, and they sort it out. It's a—it's a different world to to where we are. I'm not saying it's for the better or for the worse, but it's—it's—it's it's, it's got to a stage I think that is pretty ridiculous at the moment. Um, not just from an agent's point of view, but from everybody's point of view. I mean, even lawyers aren't clear on what are the right rules and regulations, and so it's—it's it's pretty pretty hairy at the moment.
0: And in addition to all those sort of regulatory issues you have, I think we've seen a lot more um, of what we call you know, poaching or whatever, agents trying to steal clients from each other and that sort of thing, and that leads to a lot of cases, but they're usually in Rule K arbitration, so people don't really read about them. Yeah,
2: I think as you get bigger, people tend not to try and take it from you because they're going to be pretty stupid. If, If you come to Stella, for example, but if a small agent tries to take a player from us, they've got to be pretty stupid because they're going to walk into a lot of problems. I think that happens with a lot of smaller agents that try to steal from each other or one suggests they're opportunists and trying to do things. Um, but I, th- I do think with the regulations as they are, that poaching is, is a problem for people. Uh, and I think that one of the good things that come out, and I think we're going to talk about it later, is these associations, the AFA, the football forum and all these other ones I mean years ago for example between myself and other agents like Mina who died with Riola, George Mendes and all that there was going years ago today we don't touch each other's players we speak a lot so at a certain level we're we're very cool with each other Um, and it feeds back down but we've got to stop so these associations are good because they bring a lot of agents to meetings together and they can meet. I think if you can meet an agent, each agent can meet face to face in in, in these meetings. You're less stealing when you know somebody personally. It's a lot harder to steal their player.
0: It's kind of recognizing agents as a profession and having a, a professional network or organisation for them, isn't
2: it? Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, years ago, there was a, when I first started. It was a while ago. There were a lot of one-man bands walked around, and, and, the, and the press even then um, loved them because they were characters, and they made they came on television because most people didn't want to get involved in TV with these sort of questions they were asking. People came on, and you thought that was a sort of typical agent.
0: Bubbler and all that sort of thing on TV. <laughs> yes, we remember so, that. You know,
2: I once came home to my mother many years ago, and I was with my brother. Uh, he was in another business, and she kept on saying uh, to me, Jonathan, can you get me this? And Jonathan, can you get me that? And I said, why don't you ever ask Simon, my brother? And she said, I've seen what you do for a living. <laughs> she said on television, you don't do this. You, you get this. <laughs> so, you know, my mother didn't quite understand what I actually ever did yeah. for a living. But it's changed. So Today we're not just my company. Loads of, lots of companies are, are major businesses. In some cases, some of the agencies are bigger than some of the football clubs, um, most of Um, So we are part of a major corporation and uh, it is changing. But poaching is not a major problem for us, but it it is a problem. Um, But the laws have to be looked at carefully.
0: Kelly, bringing things up to recently, the COVID pandemic, for instance, which had such a big effect on football, what kind of issues did that kind of thing bring up for, for you and Omnisports and the agents you work with?
3: Well, predominantly, you have to look at the, the health and well-being of the players because we're, we're going into uncharted territory and we're all trying to navigate these waters and no one knows what's going on. So um, players every day are used to the same routine, the same structures. They know exactly what they're doing, where they're supposed to be. Um, and that does create a, 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 a solid foundation for every single player. Um, and then when you take that away, and then you add the uncertainty, and then the pandemic that goes with it, and they don't know when they're going to play again, um, you, you're creating a whole different rose of issues that that we as as agents needed to um, to to deal with. So um, to to be to be flexible and adapt to, to the situation that was going on around us, we had to be we had to be friends, we needed to be their friends, they needed people there, they needed to be there for you to speak to when they needed support and they needed encouragement or whatever they needed, but um, it became a a different type of role, we couldn't go to games, there weren't any matches on, we couldn't go on, um, I don't know if I'm allowed to, we can't go on scan, we can't watch the games, so we can't, there's no statistical analysis to be done, there's no looking at um, and plans and progression and what they're going and, and making them accountable for their goals. But what we had to do was help them with their, their mental and their physical well-being. They had to be in shape to then return uh, for, with a very short um, period of time when they were going to go straight back into matches. So physically they had to be prepared and mentally they had to be prepared. So um, I think it was important for us to learn, adapt, apply in very uh, short in a very short time frame, with very limited information.
0: Um, it's interesting you say all that because I would have thought that's a, the club's responsibility to be doing all these things. You know, why are you having to do it?
3: So, Jonathan alluded to it earlier in terms of the clubs looking after the players in the wide, in the wider sense as a team, but individually, um, they don't necessarily get the individualized, tailored support that they might need, and also. You've got to you've got to think of them and, and what they do for a profession. They're they're very unlikely to ever go to their employer and say I'm struggling because that's just not a thing that's gonna that's gonna assist them. So they might come to us as somebody outside of that em- employer employee relationship and say I could I could do with this help. I could do with this support. But can you help me in this area? But as trusted advisors and friends and um, and really close confidants with their best interests at heart, then we're perfectly placed to assist those players with, with all, of, all of that that they were dealt with. Um, I guess on, on the other side, so from from my side, in terms of the legal aspects of it, it all came very hard and very fast uh, in a very short space of time. So we're, everyone started talking about furlough. Then we had um, wage cuts. That was the first stance. And then we went into wage deferrals. Um, so when you've got a large bank of players that you need to look after, it's not often that you get a hundred deals that sit on your desk on the same day, its spread out over a large period of time. But in this instance, it was happening to a lot of players at the same time and needed to be dealt with on an individual basis because they weren't coming with, um, Oh, it's a across the sector 20% deferral for three months. And then it's going to be repaid on that day for the next three months with all bonuses still payable. So every single deal that was coming on the table was coming at you with different terms and conditions. So, um, that was uh, a minefield to try and negotiate. And and each club dealt with it differently. So some had some dealt with the whole team. Some picked a player representative that they then went through. But then the information was then Chinese whispers once it got back to you. Um, Some clubs were saying that we're doing it for this reason. Some were saying it's a financial reason. Some it's a cash flow reason. Um, And then uh, the players wanted to maybe question what that was, especially when they were taking cuts. Uh, and clubs may have been forthcoming with information and may not have been so. Um, yeah. So the legal issues that came around that were uh, um, were tricky and difficult to navigate because we've never we've never been there before. So we were almost like the blind leading the blind at times. But I think we, as a team, as a as a football family, we all managed to deal with it with um, grace and finesse. okay. Oh,
2: yeah. <coughs> One thing she brought up was interesting because um, the when the pandemic came and the furlough started, the first thing the government came out with was having a go at football players. Mm. Yeah. <clears throat> you know, they said, well, they're not not—they're not contributing, they're not giving. I remember <clears throat> the minister at that time, in his Health, Mr Hancock, saying, it's disgrace the players aren't giving any money. And all these things that came about were actually disgraceful. Um, I think newscasters said things. I remember a couple of newscasts on the television alluded to the same thing. The Prime Minister himself said something. And they, talk, they were talking without knowing what they were talking about. Um, I have several players. I mean, no, dis- no, I can say it now because Gareth Bale got the MBE, this, this last minute honours. He gave over a million to the... Um, and I don't remember the Minister of Health saying thank you. I could be mistaken, but maybe it was lost in the post. (laughs) But I don't remember him saying or coming out with anything. I think footballers, as a general, gave more money than any other industry. And I stand corrected if the banks or certainly members of Parliament, Mm. Barathe didn't give anything like what footballers gave. And nobody gave them the credit Mm. that they deserved through the pandemic. Mm. And I just think that was disgraceful. And that's the sort of thing that newspapers, they write out, they pick up those things they don't then say, oh, well, how wonderful. These guys did it. They weren't looking. None of them that I know of. Them. I'm sure Kelly would say Dan, who No player came to me and said, I want to publicise this. You know, they gave it quietly. It was released by the other side, say. But I don't think any of them came up. And a lot of them gave that. You know, not all could give a million. But they all gave a considerable amount of money. And it was never picked up. And I think that's one of the things that we as agents you know, help them to do. Mm -hmm. And we as an agency gave and a lot of others. But it wasn't interesting as far as the press or FIFA or the Premier League or anything like that. They never, none of them came out and said thank you to the players. Mm -hmm. Not one. Mm -hmm.
1: If I can just add to that, Nick, as well, there was the sensationalist soundbite in the Downing Street briefing about players should give more. Mm -hmm. And actually it was, to my mind, entirely nonsensical. Because not only were players very generous and, and agents worked with players in doing that, and agents I know were very generous as well, but also what, the, what the, the minister was asking footballers to do is to take a pay cut to fund the NHS. Well, that's the worst way of funding the NHS because, frankly, players' salaries generate so much of the revenue in terms of tax, tax taken. So had they taken pay, pay cuts, <laughs> all that would have happened is the already very wealthy owners of football clubs would have themselves saved more money and there would have been less revenue for HMRC.
2: We did that as a company. We've said to all the clubs, "Okay, we're going to do a pay cut. A, can the money come back once, will they get it back? Or if not, is it going directly to the the National Health Service or is it to fund the football club? If it's to fund the football club, then we want it back. If no, you...
0: exactly. Um, just if I, if I can chip in, because I was acting for the, the PFA, the players union at the time, and a number of Premier League players were very involved in directing the policy of the PFA precisely in that way that uh, the, the players were saying they were very happy to give away part of their salary so long as it went to the NHS, not their club owners. Um, and so, you know, that that, that was something. But I think all of that, the, the interesting thing that came out to me from that discussion there, which perhaps a lot of people don't realise, and the use of the phrase football family that, that one of you mentioned, is that actually agents do get very involved in a lot of these things behind the scenes and are relied on. So, for instance, I, I act for clubs a lot. And when, when there's a problem with an individual player, maybe the player's got in trouble or is having trouble of some sort, I mean, it's often the, the first thing the club thinks is, let's go to the agent and the agent sort it out. I mean, they work as the union does as well. Behind the scenes, people work very closely together in this industry, don't they? It's not always against each other. We work closely together.
2: Absolutely. Oh, we'll come on to that, I guess, a bit later on.
0: Yeah. Um, so, obviously, those of you who are interested in the legal issues in um, a football agency, to know more, you must read the chapter <laughs> co-authored by Dan no and shame. I in the Football <laughs> no, and the Law book, the second edition of which will be published very soon. No shame. <laughs> no shame. <laughs> um, I don't need an agent. <laughs> I can see <laughs> Um, no, okay, we're going to move on to the bit of this show that listeners often most <clears throat> appreciate, they tell me, which is for each of you to give us a little personal inside information. Uh, you're all working in jobs that many of our listeners would be most envious of in the world's most favourite sport. How did you get there? Let's start with you, Jonathan.
2: It was a long long journey, actually. Um, when I left education, I... Um, I just went into a family business, which was actually casinos. Uh, I didn't work in the casino, but in the business of casinos. And I worked there for a few years going around the world. It was very good. And then the business was sold. And um, it was quite a large organization. And I stayed on, and I found I didn't actually enjoy it anymore. Um, So I didn't know... I left, and I didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, I'd previously been Involved, I was a sportsman to a certain level, and I loved what, sport? sport swimming, swimming, yeah. and uh, I played rugby a bit. I'm one of the few agents who never played football, <laughs> but uh, that's all right, I don't go to games anyway. So, <laughs> but uh, <clears throat> I didn't know what I wanted to do, and I met with I was doing messing around doing certain things. I met actually, my partner David Manassi, I met his father who was more my age, David's 20 years younger than me.
0: I would have never have guessed.
2: Yeah, you would. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, I met his father, and we were talking. We, we decided, funny enough, the we went into cricket because <clears throat> David, uh, Morris, who David's father, played a bit of cricket to a high standard for Middlesex, etc. And there was a couple of cricketers called Wazo Macra and Wacky Eunice, and they asked me to, if I would to give them some help. And I started with them. And, but I started with David from a, with no money from a kitchen table, just a us, and it was a hard slog. <clears throat> we went into cricket, and we became, I think, within a short time, short period of time, the biggest cricket agents in the world. And which, When was that? Which meant I earned about seven pound fifty because <laughs> cricket wasn't that big. Yeah, <clears throat> but that was got to be in the nineties, and Wacker, was, and then I got the first controversy with Wazim and Wacker with the the ball. When they were swinging the ball, and uh, there's a book being written about that. But uh, that was a hell. Of a, that was a good initiation to handle the press. Yeah. But it's um, we got involved with that. We did that, and then uh, I had a friend of mine, uh, Les Sealy, who was a goalkeeper from yeah. Manchester United, and uh, he uh, asked me to help him, and he got involved with it with us. And so I changed, went on to. Uh, start through Les with football. Uh, it was long and hard because you go up to a player. We, we decided to go to <coughs> try and sign some players. <coughs> Excuse me. Sign some players and you go up to a player and they say how many players you look after, you say none. And they say, what experience have you had in football? You say none, but we can look after you. They look at you like you're raving mad. So we were struggling for quite a while. And then I decided, in fact, it sounds crazy today. But nobody was looking after young players, and I thought the only type of person that could, really, we could get to, is through information. So we went, um, we went literally up and down the country signing youth, uh, not earning any money, doing nothing, and struggling. But we signed some very good young players. I went up and watched uh, some crazy games, under 16s and Chesterfield, and saw England get beaten under 15s or under 16s by Spain five 0 and then I saw I was the only agent in the in the place, so we and that's the basis of our business today. We still concentrate on youth, but uh, we slowly got going, and we just built on the back of that. The two of us just worked every day up and down the motorways, trying to sign people. Um, it was I think we had an advantage that in those days there were no big agencies in Britain. Uh, America was the really the where everybody was having the big sports agencies. And we, David and I aspired to, to, to become like that. And, uh, yeah, it was great. So we came from, uh, from nothing. And we started today. Today with the largest football agency in the world. And I think it was the third or fourth largest agency in the world.
0: When was your breakthrough moment? When did you say to yourself, you know, I've now got there, I've achieved, I felt I've achieved it. When was that? Well,
2: I think when the bank manager phoned me up and told me can I can I take you for lunch <laughs> as opposed to try, <laughs> as opposed to trying to close my account down <clears throat> um today I don't go to the bank <laughs> uh I don't know it's it, it, it comes gradually you know this I look back there were some great moments you know, Kieran Dyer becoming doing a deal for him doing a deal for Ashley Cole all different deals um
0: Gareth Bale deal at the time was well, the was biggest a, in the world, wasn't yeah, it? at it was the
2: time, yeah? yeah. Gareth was probably the biggest that made us most famous sort of thing. Um, and he's been the ideal client. I mean, we've had him since he was a young boy. His parents have been unbelievable. Uh, and we're still with him today. And <clears throat> it, was, it was interesting. to That was a long, drawn-out negotiation over years. His deal would not have happened if it, there wasn't an agent involved. A good agent, which hopefully we were without an agent, I don't think that would have happened because there were so many problems between clubs, obviously his, his salaries and everything else. It was a great example of why a player should have an agent um, so that's where we, we came it took it took a long time to get to where we were, but you we have to be prepared if you're today's going to be even harder because it's very hard to compete against the big the big agencies or the middle-sized agencies as as Kelly said the one-man bands I think can't can't possibly act properly for a major client so it's going to be harder but if you want to start up there's nothing stopping you getting in a car Mm. and driving and trying to sign players Mm. that's all it is Mm. but you've got to be prepared to start for a while
0: yeah yeah fascinating Kelly, tell us about your part.
3: Oh, I didn't want to follow that, Jonathan. Thanks. <laughs> I'm surprised that you didn't say the pinnacle of, of you've made it moment was your invitation to the Nick DeMarco podcast. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, that's when right you really end, know. I'm that's when know you really know. You're going to put <laughs> yeah. that in. Right at the end. <laughs> summing up, I'm going to.
3: Um, okay, so I um, always knew I wanted to be a lawyer um, and my passion's always been sport. So uh, I, uh, I was elite level table tennis player Um, Through my youth, I was in the netball team, the sports, uh, the rounders team, swimming, all of those sorts. So sport was always my passion. Uh, So I went through uni thinking I'm doing all of these topics. or What do I really want to be? So when I was looking for a training contract, Um, I was very clear that I wanted to go into sports law. But obviously, that's a really relatively new concept. Um, And there weren't many law firms out there with that sort of opportunity. So I did my research and I found a regional firm with a sports law partner who offered a secondment. As part as one of their seats um, on your training contract, so I applied there. I uh, was offered a position there and took that. So um, whilst I was training, my last seat I was offered the opportunity to go to Ipswich Town Football Club, um, where the chief exec appointed me to, and it wasn't really a legal assignment. It was a pro- to project manage the restructure of their academy when the new youth de- new, the new youth development rules came in um, under a So they were slightly behind on schedule and they needed to make the category two assessment. Um, and they thought that the skills of a lawyer would 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 make for a good project manager under the new rules. So that's kind of where I started in football. Um, and it was fascinating and exhilarating and wonderful. I got to work in the first team environment in the academy because the set ups all at the, at the same place. Um, I work with all the academy manager um, and all the operation staff and the coaches. And we had to work on all their facilities. It was an amazing experience. Um, bit of a sink or swim moment, to be fair. <laughs> I <laughs> didn't want to fail that. Um, and we managed to get category, category two status. So that was um, my my first uh, step into football, if you like. And I didn't really want to leave. So um, when I was approached by Hull City, so once I finished training, I went to Hull City um, and they offered me, they didn't have a legal department at the time, as most clubs didn't. That's also a recent development. Um, do you want to come in and be head of legal Um, And club secretary. So I said, well, that's amazing. Unbelievable. Uh, I've loved what I've done so far. And I think I want to stay in house rather than to to, to go um, to private practice. And also for me, it was very much um, when I was in private practice trying to advise clients, it was always difficult to try and understand the nuances and and the uh, and the influences and everything that goes on in their business and to give them tailored specific advice so for me stepping outside and going into the commercial world um, was was a huge asset to me personally and my ability to tailor my advice accordingly um, so then I went to whole city in an in-house role um, and that was mind-blowing if i if I can be quite frank um, profession the, the professionalism of football clubs generally over the last 10 years has improved significantly. Um, they didn't have an in-house legal team. They didn't have a chief executive. They didn't have a sporting director. They didn't have the the, 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 the resources on the ground were very slim. Um, I think one of my first tasks was, um, can you draft Steve Bruce's contract, please, Kelly? Uh, yeah, OK, then where do we start? So. Um, and because of the uh, the lack of a sporting director or head of football, or director of football, whatever you want to call it, uh, I spent a lot of my time sat between the owner and the manager and trying to mediate that relationship, which is, which was very um, which was very turbulent. Um, so I, it was a baptism of fire for me, and I absolutely loved it. I dealt with all the legal issues, anything that anybody didn't know where else it could go ends up on the lawyer's desk. So you kind of sit there and every day is completely different. You could be doing a commercial deal with, for um, a a stand sponsor. You could be doing front of shirt. You could be in doing some disciplinaries with a member of staff. You'll be sitting on the stewards meeting. You'll be sitting in the sage meeting the week before the game. You might be up in the police box, um, running operations on a, on a match day. Mm. So, um, yeah. And that's where I kind of fell in love with, properly fell in love with football in the game. Um, so I went there and then I did a similar role at Bristol City. Um, they had a club sec that needed to be upskilled because she'd come from a, um, a clerical position. So I went in there and, and had a look at their operations and looked at their, basically gave them a legal audit and worked with them. Then I set up a company with the commercial director of Bristol City at the time called The Football People. So he came from a very commercial marketing background and I came from a sports administration legal background. Um, both of us had sat in senior management positions in, in, our, in our roles and we saw a, a, a gap in the market to offer legal services, offer commercial services to different clubs that we'd been in and we thought, oh, we'll have a go at this. Um, we did a few um, posts with... Uh, we were interim commercial director at Sheffield United for a time, so we worked on the transition period for them. We did a few other projects. Um, then I moved to Australia... Out of the blue, followed a man, won't do it again. <laughs> um, he played cricket. So I went to Australia and I ended up running a company there of IT contractors. Um, had to take a break from football, obviously, because I wasn't in the UK. Um, had my son, so it was a useful break from football because having a child and trying to work in a 24-7 fast-paced industry, which um, it doesn't really allow for that, that, that sort of break or part-time needs that, that you have. Um, so then when I came back to the UK, I then went and I was chief exec of a law firm for a brief period until I realized that my passion still lies in football. And what am I doing? Why am I not in football? My son's old enough now, I can go back and spread my wings. So um, that's when I met my current boss. We'd done a deal together previously when I was at Hull City, He bought a player, we got on very well. Um, and that's how I'm now CEO at Omnisports.
0: It's fascinating. I, I never knew you'd had that, that history at clubs. And yeah. it, it, it does give you a really good grounding, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, I, I remember when I was a, a very junior barrister trying to get into sport, just doing the odd football case here and there. Um, I offered free legal assistance yes. to my the club I support oh, I back in you. those oh, I days.
2: Can't only free. Uh, <laughs> this is the early 2000s. thousand. <laughs> I'm not having that. And, and, and not having I wasn't.
0: That. Un, I wasn't undercut. I mean, the, 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 it was QPR, the club I support, and they never had any money in those days. Yep. And um, the the things I learned from that, from you know, dealing with the tax man to the shirt sponsors, as you say, managers on gardening leave, disciplinary issues. Dealing with agents, all the rest of it. Probably, I learned as much doing that for free in a few years yeah. as all the cases I did. Absolutely. Because you really learn about how football works, how works. don't you?
3: Yeah, and it's and it's crucial grounding for me uh, and my job now. But also when I'm when I'm dealing with what I'm dealing with now, I can also I'm, I can also sit and bit. I was the person on the other side, so it makes it a really it's really nice for me to understand and be empathetic and and all the soft skills that come with what we have to do with every day to know what was going on the other side. Oh, I was that person. So, um, yeah, uh, it's that's my career. It's very I don't think it's very normal, but that's how I am where I am now.
0: Great. Thank you, Dan. You are head now of a, a law firm that's um a large part of the work is is sport and you in particular specialise in football. I'm sure you get asked as often as I do, how do you get to do that as a lawyer? How, how do you get to specialise in that niche area? How, what was your path? Well,
1: unfortunately, my path is uh, far less glamorous and interesting than Kelly's and Jonathan's. Um, so this may be the bit that you want to edit out. But um, I, uh, I was... Uh, what I always say to a junior aspiring lawyer is that becoming a sports lawyer is about more than just being a good lawyer and having passion for sport. You've got to have a real interest, a burning desire to work in the legal issues that come up in the sports industry. Um, in truth, however, I, I didn't practice what I now preach in that I was at university, I knew I wanted to be a lawyer, I also knew I loved sports, so it was a no-brainer for me. Uh, I wanted to work, work in sports law. So uh, I applied to, uh, to firms that, that had an established practice in sport, Got a training contract at bird and bird at the time that was one of the few law firms at that time and i'm dating myself here that really worked in or were immersed in sport um and i spent the first four years of my career at bird and bird working in sport and 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 ip um and i undertook an excellent postgraduate certificate with uh, which was run by john taylor and then moved over to a niche firm couchman's and i spent 12 years at couchman's working predominantly with players agents and clubs and building up my expertise in, in that area uh, before then moving and co-founding Level in, in 2017 and I've been very fortunate and privileged to work on, on um, some really interesting deals in, in the football space and, 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 and I'm very lucky to get to do that day in, day out. Um, the most important thing that I have grown to learn is that clients don't want a formal lawyer who's merely going to advise them on the law this is something that Kelly touched on earlier, they, they ultimately, they want someone who is going to be a strategic advisor to their business as much as a lawyer, um, to understand the legal environment in which they operate and, of course, to protect their interests, um, but also to give them practical advice that is really focused on their business and the realities of transactions in which they're involved. Um, if they want to achieve something, then my clients don't want me to tell them the five obstacles that stand in their way. They want me to tell them how they're going to achieve that and navigate those obstacles. And that's really what I've, I've grown they, they, don't,
0: they don't want some long legal opinion with lots of footnotes. They want a practical <laughs> answer, yeah. They want a three-line <laughs> yeah.
1: executive summary. But, but ultimately, you know, agents are very, very busy and they are working in a high-pressurised environment um, with immense scrutiny on w- of what they're doing. And they, re- they, they rely on me ultimately to advise them on how they achieve what their, their goal is on any particular transaction or any particular strategy. And often, you know, that, that's what my focus needs to be. And my focus also is on is on adding genuine value. So, I, you know, I don't want to rubber stamp contracts and advise them on what the legal analysis may be under X or Y case. Mm. I want to be able to actually add value that perhaps the agent hasn't even thought of when first coming to me in the first place. Um, and one of the interesting things I find about working in, in, in football is that there are so many different spheres, and legal areas that touch upon the world of, of sports and in particular football law. The employment, corporate, IP, tax, contractual, regulatory issues. So there are so many so many moving parts that one has to stay across. And that's what I find particularly interesting exciting and interesting about working in football
0: and you're unlike me actually you, you started out wanting to be a sports lawyer really um i think when i started i didn't know it existed <laughs> but um the, the other thing while you're on to ask you is i know your firm does more than sports media and so on but it is one of this new trend of what people describe i'm not sure if you like the description of boutique firms that have kind of split away from larger all purpose firms and specialized particularly in the sports sector. And level is, is one, Morgan Sports, Northridge, uh On side, centre field. It's I remember talking to you when you were setting it up. There's been this trend in the last few years towards that. Why do you think that is? And do you think it's a necessary trend?
1: Well, I think it's interesting because in a way it, it echoes uh a a very common theme within the football agents industry, which is that football agency is about relationships, ultimately, it's so important. And in the sports world, uh, the reasons why boutique or niche firms, whatever you want to call them are, 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 I think, very successful these days is because so much of it is relationship driven. You know, we have um, deep-seated, really strong relationships with our clients. And ultimately, clients recognize that they're coming to an individual or a group of individuals, because of that that person or those persons' collective expertise in their sector, um, it's something that because it's very personal and because it you know you often for a lot of the work in sport you don't require huge teams. It's about an individual's expertise, so it's very suited to that boutique space um, level. As a firm is is you know a, a, a very uh, a very new model law firm. We're not a traditional firm and the fundamental concept is focusing on an individual's expertise and that individual's ability to service their clients and what we do is we provide a platform for that senior lawyer to be, to be able to do that uh, free and free from the constraints that you get in in traditional firms so i think it's that particular specialism that individuals have that lends itself very well to to niche firms
3: if i could add that actually it's really interesting you say that because the, t- the traditional firms where you're dealing when you're when you're going external they will give you to a particular area within that law firm but it's so obvious when you're speaking to them that they they're not in tune with what it is that you're talking about i mean when we're talking about dual reps or we're talking about hmrc regulations and we're talking about the how the tax works and how you would structure a deal etc unless somebody like dan is is very knowledgeable specifically about the areas that you're talking about and the regulatory landscape it's almost impossible to have that conversation because you're almost teaching them the entire backdrop Absolutely. before they yeah. can then advise so the boutique firms have a, um, a good place to
0: or you go straight to the qc or you
3: go straight to the qc <laughs>
0: um, <laughs> next up the proposed new fifa regulations and the cap on fees very controversial um briefly dan give us a summary of what these new regulations are first of all? Uh, Sure
1: well well, doing it briefly is is no easy task but I will endeavour to do so. Let's focus on the key ones. Yes so I I guess just very briefly at the start a little bit of background FIFA deregulated the industry effectively deregulated in 2014-15 and one of its main justifications was that only 20 to 30 percent of deals were being conducted by licensed agents and therefore Apparently 70% weren't. So FIFA, rather than trying to remedy that, just sought to walk away from the, the, the issue. Um, most people working in the industry uh, were recognized that there were going to be significant problems by virtue of that. And, and uh, lo and behold, most of those problems have, have come to pass. So FIFA has now sought to re-regulate the industry by wishing to implement new regulations those regulations have not yet come into force Um, but uh, if you ask FIFA certainly they they will be coming into force uh, very soon Um, the new regulations focus on representation agreements with an international dimension so domestic representation agreements will still be governed by domestic regulations albeit the national associations are required to implement uh, many of the, the the aspects of the new FIFA regulations um, agents will have to pass an exam conducted by, uh, by by FIFA through the national associations and in addition to that they'll have to, t- to undertake continuing professional development on an ongoing basis, the aim being to raise standards in the industry. Um, payments will have to be made uh, through the newly established FIFA Clearinghouse uh, in order to increase financial transparency. There will be a newly established agents chamber of the football tribunal to hear disputes relating to to representation agreements, um, and there are just, other just things. Would, would it new. be cynical of me to
0: think that those measures might make FIFA some money running an exam
1: clearinghouse banks and I so on? I suspect that's a fairly safe bet. Sorry, carry on. Yes, uh, but there are other things that are new too. For example, the representation of coaches, which for the first time will fall under the the, the new regulation. So so far not so not so bad indeed there are actually some good things in there in my view uh, however there are then a bunch of prescriptive rules which are highly controversial including restrictions on dual representation approaches to and representing minors so under the new regulations as currently drafted an agent won't be able to approach a minor until the 6 months before they reach the age that they can sign a uh, their first professional contract, um, but and how is that different to, to what we have now in England? Well, at this stage in England, the uh, an agent can represent, can can approach a player via his family, provided that the agent has certain additional authorization from the FA to do so, uh, from the first day in January of the year that the player turns. 16 or will turn 16 so ultimately a 15 year old players sign their first professional contracts at 17 but they'll often be often those offered those professional contracts when they're still scholars um, and so it is uh, to my mind uh, fairly unbelievable that a governing body is going to prevent a young player from being able to seek professional representation we've talked about the need for agents in the industry to address the imbalance between players and clubs. And so to restrict players from being able to to seek professional advice at an early formative formative stage in their career when they are being presented with potentially lucrative professional contracts um, just doesn't make any sense to to my mind. Um, There is a proposed prohibition on a club paying a football agent's fees on behalf of a player, um, uh, which is Common practice in the industries we've already we've already touched upon, and then there's the commission cap, which we'll no doubt move on to, and very briefly, some, uh, FIFA wants to impose a, a maximum commission cap on on what an agent can earn for his or her football agency services, uh, and that cap consists of uh, a cap of three percent if you're representing a player, uh, it can be five percent if the player earns less than two hundred thousand US dollars a year, but effectively it's it's really three percent of the player's remuneration or six percent if the agent is acting for the player and the club um, and if representing a, a, a selling club the commission is capped at 10 percent of the transfer fee and notably other services provided by an agent uh, such as the negotiation of commercial contracts will also be factored in when assessing the cap
0: thank you um we're going to move on to the cap in a moment but before we do so um uh, kelly Uh, Not everything FIFA's proposing is necessarily a bad thing. What do you think about the reintroduction of licensing and an exam system in particular?
3: So we've talked about it um, predominantly throughout, about the professionalism. So we we should talk about it as a profession. So we, are as lawyers, we're heavily regulated, barristers, heavily regulated, accountants, vets, doctors, etc., And for me, it's a really good thing to be coming into our industry. Um, There are lots of good agents out there. There are lots of bad agents out there. But essentially, the regime that it is at the moment is that anybody in this room, um, a certain few tick box exercises could go and pay you £500 to the FA and become an agent. And tomorrow you can you can sell yourself, hold yourself out as, as an agent and you're in charge of a very important element of a person's career, which in itself is very short in time span. Um, and for me, it's absolutely imperative to increase the standards, increase the competency, in- increase the professionalism across the board. And I think a licensing system with an exam, dependent on how seriously FIFA take the exam and how hard they're going to make it. If they're going to make it easy, it seems a bit of a tick box exercise. But if they're going to make it a challenging exam, then. Um, It will inevitably increase professionalism and standards across the board which for me is only in the best interest of the players and that's what it should be um we're seeing a i see a lot of agents that are acting not in the best interest of the players and and that's what really um gets to me personally is that that's what we should be doing it for and and i think it's commendable for, for fifa to try and increase the transparency and the integrity and and the standards for the protection of the players and Introducing a licensing system with an exam should do just exactly that. So for me, there are many controversial aspects of of the regulations, but these should should be applauded.
2: If I may, <coughs> I, football forum today. I'm the vice president. Unfortunately, our president died. Meenarir. Um, I think what you to understand today, the football forum represents probably the biggest proportion of agents in the world. We have under us our associations that part of it, the German, Spanish associations, the British English, they all come within the football forum, so I'm speaking probably on behalf of most of the major agents in the world today. Um, just to want to go back to some of the things you said. In reality, we have no problem with FIFA's coming up with a set of rules. The problem is they don't know what they're doing. Um, They're run by people who have never set foot in a football agent's office. They don't know how football agents work. I mean, they should have been listening to this podcast. They might have heard something. And just to go back to your thing about licensing, I had a meeting with the heads of FIFA, and they introduced me to a lawyer who is going to be setting the exams for agents. And I said, what do you know about agents? And he said, nothing. I said, have you ever set foot in an agent's office? He said, no. I said, have you ever been involved with an agent? He said, no, I've never met one. Now, how can he be setting the rules for agents? It's, that's the sort of thing we're up against in general with FIFA. They're, they are trying to put in rules without knowing what they're doing. They, it's like they might as well be doing it for brain surgeons. There's no, They just haven't got a clue. And that's my biggest and every, every agent's biggest problem. We all want what Kelly wants. We have no problem with Proper rules, proper regulations, and along, but they've got to do it in conjunction with agents. So and then
0: that's one of the problems, isn't it, Jonathan? They haven't consulted with agents. Oh, agents right. aren't part of the stakeholders that are formulating is, this.
2: Yeah, I mean, they they haven't obviously read the Oxford English Dictionary on what consultants what consulting actually means. They just call agents into an office, say mm-hmm. these are what the rules are going to be. Any questions, and if somebody says to them, Well, what about this? They say, Well, we're not empowered, for the people that are there, so we, we'll have to go back and ask. So there's been no real cons- con- uh, consultation whatsoever, and that is the major problem that we have. Um, to pick out a, a cap uh, is not, I mean, obviously, I'll talk about that, but it's, there's more to it than that. So we want proper rules, proper regulations, because as Kelly said, and I'm sure Dan agrees, it's a ludicrous number of agents out there. Um, so we will get, we're all for favour of that. In Britain, we have a clearinghouse. We have the, F, all money goes through the FA. Albeit slowly. But, but they, it goes through. So they're coming out with things that don't. Their claim that they look after its players is ludicrous. And actually completely and utterly wrong. I'll give you just one quick example. When the last Super League was thing that all the clubs came out, first thing that FIFA said, the very first thing, was, we will ban players from playing. Well, how's that being on a footballer's side? That's the first thing. And if you ask any player in the world who does FIFA represent you, well, I've never come across one that thinks so. And if anybody knows differently, let me know. Because they don't know what. No player has any contact with FIFA. FIFA has never represented players. They've only represented associations and, to a certain extent, clubs. And they've never had any association with players. So they're looking after players is ludicrous and lies. So that's that.
0: Great, thank you. Jo- Jonathan, um, with the football forum, you've been leading the opposition to some of those more controversial aspects of FIFA's regulations. Um, take the 3% cap that they talk about, for example. What's wrong with that? Why shouldn't there be a cap? People say agents take too much money out of football. What do you say?
2: As far as... The 3%, I'm against any cap, and so the Football Forum, and I think most people in the world are against caps. It's it's just not right. Um, and when you say you take money out of football, we're not taking money out of football. That's ludicrous. You know, we, we get paid for doing a job. If my client doesn't think I'm doing a good job, then he'll leave me, or he won't. I don't hold a gun to a footballer's head and say you've got to pay me X. We don't do that. Um, because they don't know what an agent does, because FIFA doesn't know what an agent does, they're just throwing these figures out. You've, you know, one of the challenges that we we have is that our lawyers, and we're going to have, we have probably the best lawyers and barristers and QCs in the world going around the country, acting for us, um, people, you know, we've got the top. And they, they, when we say to them, where did you come up with this evidence? They can't show us any evidence of any of their figures. Well, they haven't shown us so far. They can't show me how 3% will help a player. They can't show me all these claims that X is going out and, gets, and it's against consolidation. That's completely wrong. Our fees don't go towards consolidation. So it's completely rubbish what they're talking about. And that is the biggest problem we have. We will fight them in the courts we will try and do whatever is necessary to stop. Not just that 3%, which everybody sort of focuses on because it's agents, the rules in general, but understand we, we are not against rules. We would love to be sit down with, the, with FIFA, with our lawyers, people like Dan understands it, Kelly or whoever, who understand things and come up with a set of rules that are correct that can be followed. All this will lead to is money going under the table, rules that shouldn't be. And me as a big company, my company, I can't. I don't want to go back to where someone's going to be offering me money under the table. We, you know, I've got to pay 200 people, salaries. And I want to, but FIFA, you just can't talk to FIFA. And so it's going to lead to major, we'll, there will be within the next few months, major litigation in probably six, seven countries. And all it's going to lead to is the next few years it's going to be held up in the courts now, and you, you'll know. There'll be a lot of... They won't be able to in, implement it right away. there will be fighting in every court. And it's a bit more complicated because Britain is not in the EU, so we're going to have to fight different rules, different set of cases to the ones in, in Europe. But we're going to do it, and, you know, it's going to cost a lot of money and a lot of wasted money and, and bad publicity for football, unfortunately. But there's no way that we would accept the rules as they stand. And that's in, obviously including the 3%. Yeah. They, and, I'm sorry, because on 3%, it will reduce the work that we can do helping players. And so players will definitely suffer. Well, I mean, that, that's
0: a key point, isn't it? Because Dan was giving that example. I know FIFA liked to present it as helping the player, but what they were doing with minors meant that a poor young player has to negotiate with the club who've got sophisticated lawyers and chief executives and isn't allowed someone is to represent reason? them. And then with these caps, you've got a situation where the 3% would be on the players' earning, so therefore you're not so incentivized to have the players' earning high, but then you can get 10% on the transfer fee, which is the money that goes to the club. And, of course, we all know the higher the transfer fee the less money there is to Back pay the player.
2: And it's ludicrous. The, the minor thing is a disgrace because, you know, as well as I do, one of the most important things, for example, the length of contract that a player at 16, 17 years old signs, they're going to force him to sign five-year contracts. And In some cases, it may be right. And in other cases, it may be wrong for that player to sign. But he's, not going to, he's going to be sitting there. Him and his father are going to be sitting there very scared. And these Cubs are going to insist that they sign this contract. And nobody's sitting next to them. It's, that is just one of the things. But it's, the whole thing is absolutely disgraceful. And they don't, they don't know a player, let alone help them. They don't even, I don't think that too many people, I'm not sure how many players of a normal club that Infantino has ever met. So, you know, they all talk about it. But in, in reality... The way they're behaving is actually outrageous.
0: Well, thanks for that. We could talk much more about it, but we've got one more question that I'm going to have to deal with. Quick bullet point answers now, because fascinating as it's been, we're running out of time, Um, and what I'm going to ask you finally is what does the future hold, whether there's a cap or not, or new regulations or not? We're, We're living in a new world. People talk about changes in broadcasting, image rights, NFTs, different agents in other sports. What Do each of you think are the the things to look out for in the future? What will agents be doing?
1: What changes uh, will we see? Dan? Well, just very briefly on on regulation and on the cap that is being introduced, just to pick up on one thing that Jonathan said, which is this concept of um, payments to agents being money flowing out of the game. I think that's just plainly wrong. You know, the reality is we never talk about payments to club chief executives, to banks Mm -hmm. on factoring transfer fees, to on commercial loans, on non-playing staff and suppliers. None of that is money flowing out of the game. Agents play a core part of a a key role within the industry. And I think the sooner that there is uh, a shift in mindset moving forwards... Uh, to accept that agents do play a fundamental role in the industry, the, the better we'll, we'll be able to have a, a sensible discussion on regulation. Um, in terms of trends, I think that uh, I see more and more power lying with the larger agencies. I think there's going to be consolidation across the across the, the, the board. Um, I see the ever increasing power, commercial power of players, as opposed to traditionally where you know it would sit with clubs. Um, so an agent's role in truly managing the commercial off the pitch aspects of a player's career will, will, will only increase. And I think there'll be more and more crossover into other industries, fashion, music, um, with footballers now amongst the world's most powerful influencers. Um, I think the increasing prominence of the women's game over the past few years uh, is great to see, and that will no doubt be an ever increasing focus. And, and finally, the explosion of activity in the cryptographic and NFT space and Web3, presents a host of new opportunities for players that, frankly, we're only scratching the surface on at the moment. And there's a, there's a whole host of issues there to grapple with, which make it a dynamic and exciting time to work in player mm. representation.
0: Fascinating. Kelly?
3: Um, yeah, I, I don't disagree with anything that Dan said there. Um, I think the, the exam system that's coming in is going to shrink the market back down to what it was pre-2015. It's going to increase the standards. Um, I think the the level of service provided by agents is going to have to improve, um, to stay competitive. So the, the holistic service that Jonathan and I have spoken about um, to each individual player, I think the one-man bands are no longer going to be able to compete with the level that's going to be required of them. Um, I think that obviously pre- presents opportunities to mid to large size agencies, um, consolidation, mergers, uh, I think we'll see more and more of over the over the next 12 to 18 months. Um, I think increase in the women's game. I think more and more agencies are going to step across into that sphere. Um, and as you say, the, the player opportunities for commercialization in terms of crypto and and, and um, NFTs is is really close to um, being on on our desk for sure. So um, We'll see what the challenges come with those, um. But I, I think yeah. For, for me, agents are um going to have to provide the, the the full whole service at a completely different level to to be able to compete in, in this new in this new world.
0: Thank you, Jonathan. <laughs>
2: um, I think in England we're going through an interesting stage with agencies. Three. Probably the three biggest agencies in Britain are all owned by American cor- corporations today. Um, Wasserman, ourselves, BASE. Uh, and then there's also, at the moment, going through... IC- I'm a Stellar is part of ICM, which is now in the middle of a takeover by CAA, which owns BASE. So everything is sort of getting smaller and smaller. The world's getting smaller and smaller. But it's going to be harder for other smaller agents to survive with the resources that we've got because if you take the combined force of us our agency uh, hopefully if it goes through we're talking several billions worth probably more than most football well definitely more than any football club and so it's it's a new world Um, and I think there's a lot of responsibility comes with that Um, I think smaller agencies will obviously go away um, mid-sized ones will join together probably a lot more um, Kelly can speak on that but I, I think the most I think the most important thing that will happen is the standard of agents will improve uh, it's, it's okay now it's getting better and better I think the onus is to ha- I'd love to have which one of the things we want to talk about with FIFA going back for a second is to have proper uh, courses for people who apprenticeships to be trained or whatever to be agents. You can't wake up one morning today and say I think I'll look after So so. You're looking after somebody's life and with all these the NFT, we have an NFT department, we have esports departments. It's a whole new world from where I started, but we have them all. And to be able to handle that, to be able to handle somebody's life is very, very important. And well, obviously, but uh, it's on a upon us for the next few years to make sure that whoever comes into our industry is trained, knows how to handle somebody's life and has a license. That's where the license comes in, not to know that what happens if a player from Zimbabwe goes to Afghanistan, what are the rules? Nobody cares particularly between that. How do you look after a player and keep him his life so that when he retires in his 30s, he's got money to live by? That. sort of thing they need to ask and that's what why we're fighting all this now so in the future i see a much more professional much better run organization not the way that fifa but the way that agents themselves have to look towards handling their, their lives
0: thank you kelly jonathan dan thank you all very much i think that's been a really interesting discussion we've explored what football agents really do. And I hope we've debunked some myths out there that people have about agents, the the central role they play and looked at uh, some of the controversies as well. So thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for listening to the Sports Law Podcast. In the next edition, episode five, we shall be looking at another hot topic in football and the law, financial fair play rules. From Manchester City to Derby, the new UEFA rules, whether such curbs on spending are fair and how they have been implemented or maybe not implemented. I'll be joined by a number of leading experts in the field, including some of those who co-wrote the chapter on FFP with me in our Football and the Law book. So make sure you follow us and subscribe to the Sports Law Podcast and we'll see you next time.